This week on a lively experiment, takeaways from Providence Mayor Jorge Alorza's State of the City speech. And the parade of witnesses continues in the grand jury investigation surrounding the convention center audit. A lively experiment is generously underwritten by for more than 30 years, A Lively Experiment has provided insight and analysis of important political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm John Hazenwhite, Jr., and I'm proud to support this great program and Rhode Island PBS. Joining us this week, Sid McKenna, Executive Director of the Rhode Island Democratic Party. Susie Yankee, Chairwoman of the Rhode Island Republican Party. And Pat Ford, Chairman of the Libertarian Party, Rhode Island. And welcome everyone, I'm Jim Hummel. We appreciate you spending part of your weekend with us. This week we get to hear from the leaders in Rhode Island's three political parties about some of the challenges they face during this election year. But first, Providence Mayor Jorge Alorza touted a new Providence in his annual State of the City speech this week, but left out the state's takeover of his own school system. Sue, it was a very optimistic uh, speech. I think there's a lot of good stuff in there. The reality is the mayor's kind of out of the loop now in one of the most important things facing the city. Certainly, education is the, the pathway to success for students in Providence, and he completely glossed over it. He didn't address it at all. You know, I commended last time, I think I was on this program, that the governor appointed um, a new commissioner of education and let her do her job. She has now appointed a new superintendent of the Providence schools. And we're excited to see what she has, but the mayor just didn't even address it in new Providence. I just think he should have said, same old, same old. He's got a lot of stuff going on, Sid. I mean, they're talking about the bike paths, which have been a little controversial. And I know he's talking about community policing and other things. I also wonder though, how how that agenda goes forward. There's been a little bit of rift with the, the city council. What do you, what do you, how do you see this year playing out for him? I think that the mayor has done a great job with investing in Providence. I think that his capital improvement plan that he worked on with the council over the last probably four years has been phenomenal. Um, putting uh, uh, infrastructure in the recreation centers and our parks and streets and being a Providence resident myself, I can really see the difference when I go outside and walk around my neighborhood. So I have to give him and the council credit for coming together on that plan. Pensions, 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 OPED. That's the elephant in the room. Until Providence addresses it. And to his credit, he's actually mentioned the words in polite conversation. He's mentioned the word pension now in, uh, in, in interviews. But until a serious effort is made to remove that albatross hanging over Providence by either A, entering municipal bankruptcy, or B, selling off city assets, which we're gonna to touch on later in the show, tease, um, you're not going to really be able to have a path forward. But you also wonder if that's so overwhelming. You know, he tried to sell the water system last year. <laughs> that didn't he go didn't so, own. Didn't go so well, yeah. <laughs> he didn't own it. So, and I agree with Pat, pensions, 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 with a $2 billion unfunded pension liability. That is money that doesn't exist. So you're selling something to these municipal workers that they will never be able to um, get back. So that's just awful, I think. It's just awful. And talk about infrastructure. 
that pedestrian bridge cost overruns. So is he even managing the city in the best ability of the residents? Yeah, of just Providence? for the record, that was a state project that started many, many DOTs ago. Uh, but the real rub will be how they maintain that. How they, they maintain they've, it, right. you know, allocated whatever $100,000 to maintain and it. And they had to rip out, open, rip out those bike paths that he already put in. Yeah. So I caution everybody to say, is he really managing in the way that it should be managed. But you wonder with the pensions, it's so overwhelming. And you wonder at some point whether he's like, well, I, I've made this proposal and, and you know, do I ride out the string? That's a tough issue to it tackle. Is. But one, one thing I've known about Mayor Lorza and his team is that they're innovative thinkers and they're not going to stop trying to figure out how to close the gap on that. They have been making the ARC payments. They have been uh, finding some success with that. So I have full faith. Look, Providence is not different from other cities uh, of the same size with those kinds of problems. But what you can't do is turn your back on putting money into infrastructure and into programs in the city that make it a great place to live. Uh, if you don't have people who want to live in the city, then you'll never be able to have an economy that works and that can address those financial problems. So I think that he's balancing that and he's doing a good job with it. Okay, Thursday was another uh, raucous night at the State House. Uh, gun legislation, which came up last year, what's interesting is that the governor and uh, Peter Nerona, the attorney general, got together for a press conference. They've unveiled a whole package of gun um, control legislation. You wonder, Pat, though, we hear this every year, and then at the end of the session, it's kind of like the, the, uh, the Second Amendment coalition kind of sneaks in and then everything dies. Not everything. They've passed it incrementally. Well, what you when you're talking about legislation, though, where uh, folks who buy guns have to check in with police departments, what you are accomplishing there or attempting to accomplish through backdoor legislation is nothing less than a gun registry, which is unconstitutional. Rhode Island has got the toughest gun laws in the state. At this point, gun legislation being advanced by significant parts of the legislature, and especially our governor after yesterday, is nothing less than political pandering. It's also a very effective way to raise funds from outside of the state to spend on politics in general, the way our election laws and the way our uh, fund fundraising laws are set up. So it's unfortunate that we every year we have to remind people of what part of thou shalt not infringe don't you get? And at what point in time will the political opposition come together to muster challenges, both legal and also legislative, to these egregious violations? There's so many other challenges this state faced. It's time to move on. Any thoughts on the gun legislation? I mean, this morning I put on the radio when I was getting ready for work, and um, they were talking about the Parkland massacre two years ago yesterday. And I had to turn it down because my 14-year-old son was in the next room. We have really failed our children and the generation under us in terms of making them feel safe. And to me, it's our responsibility to enact stricter gun laws and to give them a sense of a childhood and growing up in a safe space that we all had. And I think they deserve the same. I think it's up to us to do a lot better. Oh, I'm a huge proponent of the Second Amendment. When you start taking away liberties and rights from people, what's next? Um, you see what's happened in Virginia. They have these egregious laws on the books, and now they're talking about taking away First Amendment rights. You're not allowed to criticize the governor. You're not allowed to criticize the lieutenant governor. So I just see a pathway of removing rights from people. And what do these gun safety regulations actually accomplish? Are they making people safer? You look in Chicago, they have really tough gun legislations. You're taking away rights from law-abiding citizens. And law-abiding citizens are going to obey the law 
but criminals are not. So you're not making anybody safer. Yeah, part of it is with the new round, it's the assault weapons ban, uh, 10 round limit on magazines, ghost gun ban, uh, background checks and that type of thing. I think the main issue though is the mental health checks. But we found in Westerly, that guy somehow got around it because he had mental health issues. So, I mean, I don't know how you tackle that. Well, and that's why I think we need to start challenging respectfully the Parkland narrative because the single biggest point of failure in Parkland was the government and the failure to enforce or the failure to even understand the scope of the laws that they had in place, as well as the failure of law enforcement itself to respond adequately. Parkland gets mitigated greatly if, in fact, law enforcement starts using the myriad of laws, the countless laws, the endless laws that they have already in place, which is why I consider a lot of the legislation taking place right now to be nothing less than political pandering. But the high-capacity magazines is was a big issue and is a big issue. And so I, I, as a parent, don't see the need for anyone to have that. And I think it should be regulated because the speed in which you could mow people down, like what happened in Parkland, is actually what the problem is. What about that? But who's mowing these people down? It's certainly people that have mental health issues. So we're addressing the wrong problem. We're not looking at the root cause of what, why this happened, and we're ignoring that. Right, so and when as the, a country, we ignore y- mental health. Yeah, as a country, we do, and I will agree with you that. Why are we not looking at what is the root cause? And that happens a lot. So what do we do? We throw legislation on that is not going to make us any safer. These gun, uh, ghost gun bills, I said, what are we actually doing here? What are we actually accomplishing? And it's nothing. And you're selling it to the public as we're going to make you safer. No, you're not, because you're not hitting the root cause of the problem. Yeah, I mean, again, magazine limitations. Understand, too, that the right to engage in one's self-defense goes way beyond the American Constitution, goes way beyond the Rhode Island Constitution. It's, it's a, a right that you enjoy simply by birth. And the notion that the Second Amendment exists and you can attack it based on individual tragedies mitigates the notion that we as individuals have the right in this country to arm ourselves to overthrow a government if that's necessary. And for those folks who poo-poo that and diminish that, I would point out to you France, I would point out to you Venezuela, literally dozens of countries and developed nations around the world. Yeah, but you have a country now that this, you know, the argument is this doesn't happen in Europe. And it's almost like the toothpaste is out of the tube because there's so many guns on the street right now. So you're trying to retroactively go back and do something, right? Yes? No? Oh, <laughs> you're looking at me. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, no, I think that you'd have to go back and really understand the statistics to see if things that are happening in Europe and things that are happening in America are any different. And I disagree with you on your statistics on that. And again, I, it's a huge mental health issue. Why are we not focusing in on that? But I think that it's reasonable to put parameters around who can buy when, what the waiting period is, what the parameters on, on how much or how often or where it needs to be registered. I think that's all common sense. And I believe that the governor and the AG are moving in that direction towards common sense gun laws. But at what point in time do individual rights become obsolete because of the will of an individual group of government? Well, I mean, that's just, that's antithetical to the American Constitution. It's antithetical to the style of government and the participatory democracy that we have. It's just wrong. You simply don't have that right. Whether you choose to impose it on yourself, that's great, but it's simply immoral. All right. Uh, we got, hey, well, we'll leave that for uh, uh, another day. Um, the uh, grand jury investigation surrounding the convention center audit 
uh, ramped up a couple of notches this week. We've had some uh, witnesses coming into the grand jury to set the table. This is over. Speaker Mattiello had ordered an audit. Some questioned his motives. He said uh, he wanted to get to the bottom of what's going on at the convention center, but the state police and the grand jury are now involved. A lot of sound and fury. You know, the grand jury process, it'll play itself out. But I wonder the larger issue of the speakers in the middle of the session right now. He's got a lot of balls to juggle. He has some of the progressive, you know, flank that you've had to deal with, um, some of the women's caucus. I wonder how this affects. We talked about this on, the, on last week's show, how you see it affecting the session. And, it, and, and it's kind of a parallel thing that he's trying to deal with now. I mean, I think that the speaker is a very focused individual. I think he's great at what he does. Um, yesterday, there was a flap on the floor. And if you watch his demeanor and his composure and how he managed to navigate around that was is a testament to his his focus and his love of legislation le legislation and being on the legislator so i think that um he's doing his job i think he remains focused on doing his job he's got two very important bills passed out yesterday and i see that he'll keep doing that you know in spite of what's going on around him i think he's compromised i watched capitol tv last week and watched his demeanor he looked rattled and not focused on what was going on. He didn't understand. It seemed like he didn't understand the legislative process at all. And I wonder how much all of this outside noise and all these outside grand juries and investigations and, and talking about corruption and cronyism that goes on at the state house. If it is starting to rattle him, it's got to. It's a lot of pressure. It's a lot of pressure. Well, it's, it's easy to manage legislation if, in fact, you're an autocrat and you have complete power. Um, unlike no, nearly every legislature in this nation, he rules truly with the iron fist. You know, as a libertarian, we look to the disease, not the symptoms. The symptoms, of course, in this situation are, again, egregious uh, public potential public corruption. You've got, again, patronage jobs being larded out everywhere. You've got an organization, this Providence Convention Center Authority, which has grown into the dunk and it's grown into the veterans and this huge, massive administrative nightmare that does nothing but hemorrhage cash. And, and that's really the problem. Because wherever you have that concentration of money and government power, you're going to have all the usual suspects show up. So, you know, you talk about solutions. It's a very simple solution in this case. The state of Rhode Island, Providence Plantation, city of Providence, has no business whatsoever being in this type of business. They simply don't have the core expertise. Let's get together great investment banking minds. Let's put together a number. Let's sell the convention center. Let's sell the vets. Let's get rid of any, any presence we have as a government whatsoever in that whole organization. Sell it to private enterprise. Use that money to uh, to pay down, for example, OPED or Providence pensions. A number of places in this state where we can reduce debt. We're one of the most heavily bonded states in the nation. Do that, and guess what? We don't have hearings anymore about uh, patronage hirings. We don't hemorrhage cash at the convention center. It's in the private market. It's in the free market where it belongs. The, the irony is that the Republicans had been calling for the audit. That's gotten kind of lost in the sound and fury with Blake Filippi, but you, I would assume you think that audit needs to be done. Well, more than five years ago, we were saying, what's going on at the convention center? They're leaking money, um, and yes, we believe in an audit, but we want it done lawfully. We, uh, I know that the Blake uh, Filippi has uh, asked for the JCLS to meet, and he had a press conference yesterday and said, let's meet, let's discuss this, and let's order a, let's order a proper audit lawfully. And they didn't want to meet. 
Well, I, that's because he has a pending lawsuit, so I don't think he can do both at the same time. Yeah, but the lawsuit becomes moot as soon as they meet. I mean, that's not an excuse. Or if he they could met. dismiss the lawsuit and then they could meet. Well, how about they meet? He asked to meet, and they said no. So, and even the Senate president and uh, minority leader over there said, no, we're not going to meet because it's a pending lawsuit. Well, if you meet, the lawsuit becomes moot. Well, I mean, but Dennis Algier, who clearly, uh, you know, staunch Republican, been up there for years, and I think saw the saw what Sid is saying, that because you have pending legislation, if they could come together with a stipulation, maybe yes, that would be... absolutely. But he, Blake actually sent a letter to them. And uh, Speaker Mattiello said, if you ask for a meeting, we will meet. And he asked, and they said no. Not only that, they locked them out of the press conference room. He asked to have a press conference about this. He asked to meet, and the speaker locked him out. Talk about an autocrat. You wouldn't even let, that's not the speaker's room to lock a minority leader out of. I mean, I just think that that's absolutely outrageous. Yeah, and Minority Leader Filippi said, they asked him on the radio, what about that? He's like, well, look, I got enough battles to fight Get it, getting a room for the press conference. The larger issue now is, and we talked about this last week, Nick Gorham, former state representative, talked about the speaker having um, to face this in the middle of a session. John Harwood had his issues later on. I also wonder as we look at the state budget, you know, Speaker Mattiello said something that I thought was pretty candid the other day. He said, this is really no way to run a railroad in terms of the budget. We're in great economic times and we're still looking at a structural deficit. So I don't know what you do about that. Well, I think that the economy in Rhode Island has been on the upswing. I mean, they always say that we are the first ones in a recession and the first, uh, last ones out. And I think that the governor has been doing a great job building the economy here. Um, I think that, much like I said with Providence, you have to be a place that people want to live. You can't cut back on services. You can't cut back on quality of life. The two go together. So it is a challenge to grow at, at the same time as paying off the deficit. But I think that they're on track. As someone who is part of the daily migration on Interstate 295 to 95 North to the Promised Land, a.k.a. Boston, I will tell you I would be fascinated to see an analysis of the impact of the Boston economy and exactly what's that done in reviving Rhode Island's economy. I feel it has far more to do with employment prospects in Boston than it does in Providence. I also want to make one stipulation politely. Governments do not build or grow economies. They simply don't. They're not capable of it. Any economist, economist will tell you that, that governments merely try to live off of economies to pay for whatever services they provide. But I do think that a government can put the infrastructure in place that makes a state a place that people want to live in order to grow the economy. So in order to become, say, a suburb of Boston or a bedroom suburb of Boston, we have to be a place that people would want to live and then commute up to Boston. So that means we have to have the services, the the yeah, the restaurants, the nightlife, the the living, you know, the standard of living that people want in order to do that. Right. And, you have and, to if, have and if we ignore all of that, if the governor or the mayor does not put the investments into the city or the state to make it a place that people want to be, then you have to have an educated population, and we're failing miserably at that. We also overregulate our small businesses, overregulate and overtax them. So the government, when they get involved, they overregulate businesses. Who wants to come here? Why are we not attracting businesses? Look what's happening to the state of Rhode Island. In 2020, we are in the middle of a census. We know that we are losing population. We are leaking our 21 to 30-year-olds. They're leaving the state in droves. Why? 
there are no jobs here. Why are there no jobs? Because we're not attracting businesses. Why are we not attracting businesses? Because we overregulate them and overtax them. And there is not an educated population here. When you look at the lack of literacy involved in, in eighth grade students in Providence, that's outrageous. Why would I want to open a business here? I just wouldn't. But I mean, there, it just doesn't make sense. There's more lack of literacy in Providence schools in eighth grade. I mean, a lot of that has to do with the, the migration patterns of families around the state and people coming from in from other places and the English language learners issues. So, I mean, it's really not as cut and dry as we're in an uneducated state. We have a lot of challenges. As, as someone who worked for, a, well, I'm gonna date myself, a big eight accounting firm and worked for two multinationals, I can tell you that acquisitions, business investment, capital investments have everything to do with something called the effective tax rate. It has nothing to do with how many restaurants you have. It has little to do with, with the schools because quite frankly, folks in economically leveraged positions can, can afford private education. It has everything to do with the business climate, AKA the effective tax rate. Rhode Island's effective tax rate is, is completely out of control. And by the way, if we have successful businesses in the state, it's because of organic business environments. The reason why we have a great restaurant community is we are college town, rents are relatively inexpensive, and we have the, one of the finest culinary institutes on the planet that happen to be here. That has nothing to do with the state's ham-handed efforts to improve our infrastructure. All right. While I have the three of you here, the show moves quickly. I would be remiss if I didn't ask you. Um, it's nice to have all of you because we're in an election season. So we had you on shortly after you took over um, as uh, chairwoman of the Republican Party. You had said, and your message continues to be, I need to build a bench in the General Assembly. So tell us how that's going. What is your game plan heading into the heart of the election sure, season? Sure, we looked at the data across the state of where we know that we can win. You know, we're not gonna have a scattered approach of running 113 seats in the General Assembly. That's where the sausage is made. That's where everything gets done. So we looked at the data and we are targeting specific races that we believe that we can win. And we're actively recruiting candidates. We've, we've already started our candidate training program. We, we have four Saturdays in the month of February where we bring candidates in, we show them how to run, what they need to run, how to raise money, how to set out press releases. What's your Soup pitch? to nuts. What's our pitch? Look what is going on in the state of Rhode Island. It is absolutely horrendous. And you need to have a balance. We have a one-party rule here, so there's no other voice that's up at the state house. There needs to be a better balance. And everybody seems to be in lockstep with what the speaker does. He is in absolute and total control of what happens at that state house. So we need to have a better balance. We need to have more people with different voices up there combating what's going on up there. And we're actually doing quite well. We're doing quite well with getting people in, interested and involved and wanting to run. Now, you have some Democrats trying to take out Democrats, <laughs> saying that they're not progressive Yeah, enough. we do. I mean, I'd have to argue that the, it's, the legislature is not a monolith. It certainly isn't a monolith within the Democratic Party. So I think that there are quite a few dissenting voices or, or there is a robust discussion at, in the Democratic Party um, about a lot, of, a lot of issues. So I'm not sure that um, the problem is the lack of... Uh, people to mix it up. <laughs> how, so how as party leader do you navigate that? You've had to navigate that a little bit already. Sure. People wanting to make their own endorsements, raise their own money, yeah. all of that. You kind of have to walk the line on that or what do you? Well, I mean, the Democratic Party makes the endorsements through its various committees and at different levels of state and local government. And I think we have to stick to the structure. And that was uh, the issue with the Women's Caucus was that they wanted to endorse and that's not a role that caucuses take within the party. 
um, with them being outside of the party, now they're able to raise money and to train candidates and to recruit candidates to run. I think that's important. I would love to see more women lawmakers in the state, but within the party structure, that wasn't the place for that. How's the Libertarian bench doing, Mr. Ford? It's actually doing very well, but I will tell you that the biggest obstacle to the emergence of a third party or the growth of grassroots efforts is in fact the two party, other parties that are represented at this table. In the 2016 presidential election, nearly 15,000 Rhode Islanders voted for our candidate, Gary Johnson. Uh, by every measure in just, I believe, in over 45 states in the nation, that performance would have given us the benefit, if you will, of being recognized as a major political party. But in Rhode Island, we are not. And that impacts a lot of things. That impacts your access to debates. That impacts your ability, quite frankly, to understand who your voters are because you don't have the state paying for an extra legal registration process that both of you do. So I'm going to ask, and, and this is behalf on behalf of a lot of other constituencies because there was a, a significant... 2016 presence of third party grassroots efforts, independent efforts, write in efforts for people who don't have the blessings, if you will, the imprimatur of the state of Rhode Island. So I'm going to ask both of you to commit to legislation in the coming years, the coming year or two, coming session or two, that will open up the electoral process to other organizations who have points of view, perspective, and represent Rhode Islanders. Right now, there is an effective disenfranchisement of a significant part of the Rhode Island population because of the failure of the state to recognize their efforts. It's a roadblock, it's anti-American, and again, you are disenfranchising minority voters, you're disenfranchising economic groups, social groups, and that is purely the responsibility of both the Republican, but primarily the Democratic Party in the state. So will you commit to work on that? Well, I think I agree that voters shouldn't be disenfranchised on any level, so I'm willing to have that conversation. Okay. It's got to pass a few more hurdles than just agreeing <laughs> to it on Lively Experiment. So what do you think about that? Yeah, I think that, you know, you want to have the most people possible to weigh into elections. Mm -hmm. So certainly that is uh, open to a conversation to get it done. I think the Democrats have much more control over that process. Just quickly before we get to outrageous, uh, you would had several uh, General Assembly uh, candidates over the last couple of cycles. Are you looking locally, too, as your focus on the General Assembly? Where is your, in terms of recruiting candidates? Not only locally, but nationally, our effort is at the grassroots at this point. We realize, particularly in a state like Rhode Island, where this legislature is so stilted, so centrally controlled so that w that the water boards the boards of education that's the future of the libertarian movement the the local office the hyper local office that's where we need to be and that's where we can change hearts and minds and quite frankly can clean up a few of these messes for you folks all right let's go to bring his mop with him uh let's go to uh outrageous or kudos so what do you have this week so it's valentine's day we're gonna start with a Kudos. Um, I'd like to commend Joe, Joe Biden that he said he didn't care if Speaker Mattiello didn't endorse him. And um, I'd like to say that's great because there's so much swirl of controversy around Speaker Mattiello. And I'd like to know when the Rhode Island House Democrats are going to jump on board and, and talk about the problems that Speaker Mattiello has. That was a kudo that kind of morphed into an outrage. Pat, what do you have? My outrage is the continued politicization, if you will, of the federal Department of Justice. Um, it is outrageous that an organization that is purely apolitical and is supposed to be the lawyer, if you will, and represent the will of the government, of the people, has become held hostage by a president who I don't think even cares anymore what people think about him, never mind understand the relationship between justice 
in the political process and why those need to be separated. You know, Mr. Barr, I was going to say I was going to have a little betting pool. I was going to propose on Mr. Barr's future as attorney general after his uh, rather intemperate but pointed comments this week about a president who rules by tweet. And when you look at long, not only the State Department, we've talked about in the past, but when you look at prosecutors, professional prosecutors dropping out because of political interference, that's simply outrageous. All right. Sydney, you have an outrage kudo. First of all, welcome yeah. to the show. This Thank is your you. debut. So I, it took me 29 minutes to say welcome. What do you have? Um, I have kudos to the voters of New Hampshire who came out in record numbers for the primary last week. I love to see that motivation. I love to see those numbers. And I think it's a great sign for what's going to happen in November when the Democrats, when the Democrats take back the White House. Can we officially put the nail in the coffin on the Iowa caucuses now? Do you oh. think they're gone in four years Look, or what? I just am glad I wasn't. I got so many calls that morning. Can you imagine being Tom <laughs> saying, Perez? Wow, good thing you're not executive director in Iowa. I, was like, I, I, I tweeted that out. I'm yeah. so glad I'm not the Iowa Democrat. Right. State chair. I, 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 I have to admit, I would have been the first one to hang up the phone. Shades exactly. Go Hopefully, everything will go a little bit more smoothly yeah, here. All right, folks, that is all the time we have. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to Lively, Sue. Good to have you back, Pat. Nice to have you back, also, folks. You never know what's going to happen, but we will cover it. If you don't see us at Friday at seven or Sunday at noon, you can catch us on our page, RhodeIslandPBS.org. We post all of our shows online and wherever you get your favorite podcast. Take us along with you wherever you go if you can't watch on TV. Great to have you with us. Join us back here next week as a lively experiment continues. A Lively Experiment is generously underwritten by. For more than 30 years, A Lively Experiment has provided insight and analysis of important political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm John Hazen White, Jr., and I'm proud to support this great program in Rhode Island PBS.